At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 53, Mao, 1893 to 1949. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. As always, I want to thank our Patreon sponsors and those who have made one-time contributions to the website for helping to make this podcast possible. If you enjoy this podcast and learning about the Cold War, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter or making a donation through our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Want to skip over these ads and get straight to the history? Consider becoming a Patreon contributor to get the commercial-free episodes. It goes without saying that Mao is probably one of the most controversial figures in history, responsible for the deaths of an estimated 30 to 70 million people. As an absolute ruler, he occupies this historical stage with figures like Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, and Genghis Khan. Despite the deaths and suffering under Mao's reign, his rule is controversial and complicated. Unlike a figure like Hitler, who is universally loathed, Mao, like Stalin and Genghis Khan, is a more complex historical figure. In China today, he is viewed with mixed feelings. To some, he is the celebrated father of the nation, who reestablished China after a century of humiliation. Others see him as a force of modernization in China, ending things like polygamy, foot-binding, and suppressing ancient superstitions. In the rest of the world, much of his political thought and ideals around guerrilla warfare and national liberation has remained relevant and leftist thought and amongst those engaged in insurgency warfare. Yet at the same time, he was the architect of the Great Leap Forward, which resulted in the deaths of an estimated 45 million people and the Cultural Revolution, which resulted in a further estimated 3 million deaths. Many view his reign as a dark period of Chinese history, where dogmatism of communism and the cult of personality led to the complete breakdown of the society and untold suffering. In making this episode, many of my sources varied widely on Mao's thoughts, motives, and actions. In working through the episode, I had to make a number of judgment calls in crafting a narrative. So if you heard a different account of events described in other books or documentaries, don't be surprised. On the extreme, there are two portraits of Mao. The cunning yet ruthless genius communist guerrilla leader and politician who rose to power, and the slob, villain, and opportunist who rose to the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. It's hard to remove Mao the man from the legend and propaganda. I assume the truth often, but not always, lies somewhere in the middle, and have crafted this episode in line with that belief. In putting this episode together, I decided to divide Mao's life into multiple episodes over the course of the show examining his life, versus trying to do a short series or packing everything into a single long episode. The reason for this is the length and impact of Mao's life over the course of the Cold War. It makes more sense to address this over the course of the show versus trying to address it all up front or in a single episode, which probably wouldn't do it justice. So this episode will only cover his youth and rise to power, 
Later episodes will cover his rule of China. Mao was born in 1893. At the time of his birth, the Qing dynasty had ruled China for some 250 years. Nevertheless, the empire was in a terminal state of decline. China was racked by internal defeats and had been defeated in numerous wars against the British, French, and Japanese. Despite this internal chaos and foreign invasion, many Chinese prospered. In China's large coastal cities like Shanghai and Canton, a Western-orientated middle class started to develop. Many were educated in Western missionary schools and had acquired a Western education. This new middle class also began to subscribe to Chinese-language newspapers and magazines that advocated for political and social change. They used the postal service and telegraph service that foreign companies had established in China and began to travel the country. But in largely rural inland provinces like Hunan, where Mao was born, such changes had very little impact. Mao's ancestors are said to have lived in the valley of his birth for some 500 years. Hunan was a temperate humid region whose misty undulating hills had been populated since the Neolithic age. Tigers, leopards, and boars still roamed the hills, the last tiger being shot in 1957. These hills had neither roads nor navigable rivers, isolating Mao's home village from the wider world. Indeed, Mao's village was so isolated that they didn't hear about the death of the emperor in 1908 until 1910. The 600-odd families that lived there grew rice, tea, and bamboo, using water buffalo to plow their rice fields. Mao's father, Yi Chang, was born in 1870, and at the age of 10, he was engaged to a girl 13 from the next village. She, like many Chinese women during the period, wasn't given a name. Shortly after their marriage, Yi Cheng was 15 and his wife 18. He went off to perform military service to pay for his family's debts and to earn some extra money. Chinese peasants weren't serfs, and many young men joined the army to make money. Luckily for Yi Cheng, he didn't see any action, but he did get to travel through China, and he picked up the skills of reading and writing. After returning from the army, he raised pigs and made high-quality rice, which he sold in the nearby town, becoming a respected and wealthy farmer. He bought back land his father had pawned off and expanded the family holdings to become one of the wealthiest farmers in the village. Indeed, Yi Ching was hardworking and thrifty all his life. Mao and his father ultimately wouldn't see eye to eye in life. According to some accounts, Mao was disobedient and headstrong with some of his tutors, which displeased his father. Later as a teen, Mao's father thought his son lazy, and, two, and the two often argued. Mao's mother bore seven children, two daughters, and five sons. But only three sons survived. Mao was the oldest boy. Our records are few, but by all accounts, Mao grew up in a tra very traditional Chinese family. Mao's mother was a devout Buddhist, although his father was a skeptic. By all accounts, Mao truly loved his mother like no one else in his life. Mao himself became a Buddhist, but gave up the practice in his teens. By all accounts, Mao had a carefree childhood. Until he was eight, Mao lived with his mother's grandparents. There, his grandmother doted on him, and his two uncles and aunts treated him as if he was their own son. Mao began to help on his family's farm when he was six, and began school when he was eight. Mao's father wanted his son to read and write to help with the family business. He continued to help out with the farm work in the morning and in the evening after school. Their farm was only three acres, but large by local standards. The family home consisted of a half dozen rooms, which occupied one wing of a thatched roof property. The house had floors and walls made of mud, and the windows had no glass, just wooden bars. The furniture was simple, wooden beds, bare wooden tables, and benches. 
As soon as Miles' writing and reading skills were good enough, he began to help and teach his father, as his father had only two years of schooling. Miles remained in school until he was about 13, at which point he left and began to work with his father full-time. Miles' father pr prospered during this time, buying at least another acre of land, hiring extra hands to help on the farm, and expanding into the bulk grain trade. At school, Mao had studied time-honored Confucian texts and early Chinese history. Mao's father also encouraged his son's skills in math by teaching him how to use the abacus and planned on having him apprentice in a rice shop. At 13, per traditions of the time, Mao became a man, and his father arranged for him to marry a neighboring woman. The marriage took place in 1907 or 1908, when Mao was 14 and she was 18. They were together for two or three years until she died at the age of 21. There is no record of children from the marriage, and Mao never discussed the marriage in his later life, although by his 20s we know that, that he became a fierce critic of arranged marriages. The effects of this early marriage and the death of his first wife on Mao is unclear, but what is known is that Mao became a voracious reader. He would stay up late into the night reading by oil lamp, a practice he would continue throughout his life. Even in the long march, Mao continued his readings, and later as supreme leader, half of his huge bed and the tables around it would have piles of books on them. He mostly read historical novels about China's past, but a new book was sent to him by his cousin, uh, Words of Warning to an Affluent Age, had an impact on him. The writer, Zhang Guming, was a Chinese merchant who had traveled to the West and had worked with the Western businesses. In the book, he warned his fellow Chinese about the power of the West and urged his fellow Chinese to modernize before it was too late. This book, Mao said later in life, encouraged him to resume his studies. Mao, though at the time, had no money to go back to school, and his father refused to pay for him to continue his studies. In 1910, Mao left the family farm and found two tutors in the nearby town of Xingtan, one an unemployed law student and the other a Chinese scholar. The law student introduced Mao to journals and newspapers. The scholar introduced Mao to a wider range of historical Chinese texts. In these newspapers, Mao learned about the world around him and about how China had suffered numerous defeats at the hands of foreign powers. He also read about starvation in parts of China and how merchants in China preferred to sell their rice overseas versus to their own starving countrymen. Mao said later in life that it was during this time that his political consciousness awakened. While studying in Xingtan, Mao learned of a new school which was radical for its teaching of Western ideals. The school offered lessons in the natural sciences, Western learning, and Chinese classics, and one of the head teachers had even studied in Japan. Mao convinced his father that with the knowledge he learned there, he could increase his father's earning power. His father agreed, and Mao was able to cover the cost of his enrollment. By 1911, Mao was 17, and the Qing dynasty was in its death throes. China's new educated and commercial middle class were pushing for the creation of a Chinese parliament, and an exiled political leader, Sun Yat-sen, had been building up an underground movement to overthrow the monarchy and establish a Chinese republic. Sun's supporters were active throughout the middle class and in the army. When the revolutionary broke out, Mao, like many others, found themselves swept up in the excitement of the era. Mao found his way to Changsha, the Hunan regional capital and seat of the new provincial assembly. Foreigners and merchants filled the streets. The city had a number of foreign enclaves and consulates outside Chinese law with foreign gunboats plying the river to protect their interests. These enclaves in the presence of the foreigners sparked tensions with the local Chinese. 
Radical newspapers were widely available in the city, and Mao avidly read them all. He joined in student protests against the Qing and cut off his queue. The queue was a long ponytail haircut that was mandated by law for all Chinese men. I posted a picture of it on the website. Mao played no part in the revolution and was, like millions of other Chinese, a mere spectator. By December 1912, the regime had fallen and China was declared a republic. Hunan province, with some 30 million people, became one of the most liberal and exciting places in China. The rather loosely governed republic opened all sorts of career opportunities unknown to previous generations. Factory work, commerce, law, government work, education, journalism, culture, the military, the possibilities were now limitless for an educated Chinese man like Mao. Following the excitement of the revolution, Mao decided to join the army. Mao served in the army for six months, mostly on garrison duty. He did make some friends, but army life wasn't for him. He didn't like the drilling or the chores like carrying water. It was during this time that Mao started to read socialist newspapers, such as the Shang River, Daily News. Mao decided the army didn't have much to offer him and decided to resign to return to his books. Short of money, Mao lived in a hostel and spent his days at the public library reading. He established his own rigorous schedule, arriving at the library early and only taking a break to eat lunch at noon. He concentrated on reading history and geography and recalled in later life reading The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, The Origin of Species, and Herbert Spencer's Logic. He read John Stuart Mill, Rousseau, and Montesquieu. Mao's father, though, thought his son was wasting his life away and refused to send him money unless he, Mao enrolled in a proper school which would lead to a proper profession. Life in the hostel, by all accounts, was intolerable as fights broke out amongst ex-soldiers, students, and workers living there. Mao decided to leave and attend the Hunan Provincial Fourth Normal School, which offered free tuition along with cheap room and board. Mao really came into his own at the school and enjoyed his life and teachers studying there for five years. Mao was deeply influenced by a social science teacher, Yang Chang, who had a deep impact on Mao's intellectual life. By his graduation, many of his friends had decided to travel to, Ch to France to further their education. France offered a work-study program which presented a world-class education in exchange for factory work as France was short of men after World War I. Mao, though, couldn't speak French and struggled with learning foreign languages. Indeed, he was one of the only few communist leaders to only speak one language. So instead, Mao decided to travel to Beijing and visit his former professor Yang, who had been appointed a professor at Beijing University. Yang found Mao a job working at the Beijing University Library. In the library, Mao met many of China's most influential intellectuals. Only making $8 a month, though, Mao lived in a poor section of Beijing called the Three Eyes Wall, sharing three small rooms with seven fellow students from Hunan. Mao joined two study groups, one on philosophy and another on journalism, and sat in on some classes. Mao had always enjoyed learning, but found Beijing's intellectual life aloof, smug, and self-consumed. He attempted to make friends and have intellectual conversations, but most fellow students and professors looked down on him because of his rural background and accent. Mao also fell in love with his former teacher's daughter, Yang Ke Wei. Mao's former teacher and mentor didn't agree to Mao's courtship of his daughter, though. Feeling rejected and receiving a letter that his mother was sick, Mao borrowed some money to travel to Shanghai, visiting some friends for about a month as they prepared to leave for France before borrowing some more money to travel back home. 
Upon arriving home, he told friends and family that he had been a staff member at Beijing University and took a job teaching history at a local middle school, staying there until December 1919, until he decided to start his own magazine, the Xing River Review, which got caught up in the May 4th movement. If you recall, the movement was composed of student protests that objected to the League of Nations surrendering Qingdao to Japanese occupation and called for modernity in China in the shape of science and democracy. Mao called on China to abandon its traditions and to follow the West in the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the formation of representative government. He called for a nonviolent revolution and for a boycott of Japan. Mao also became a fierce advocate of women's rights, arguing for equality of the sexes and an end to arranged marriages. Mao's foray into journalism, though, was quickly ended by the local warlord who shut down his magazine. That October, his mother died, and presiding at the funeral, he gave a loving speech to her. He was a marked man, though. The local warlord, General Zhang, saw him as a troublemaker, and Mao traveled back to Beijing to see his mentor, but found Professor Yang incredibly ill. Shortly after Mao's arrival, Yang passed away. One day later, Mao's father, too, died at his home unexpectedly. Mao, however, stayed in Beijing, not returning home, which was a shock given Chinese tradition. As a result of Yang's death, he had become more accustomed to a friend of Yang's, Li Daojiao. Li headed the Marxist study group in Beijing and was working with others to translate the Communist Manifesto into Chinese. By April, Mao traveled back to Shanghai visiting friends. He considered learning Russian but couldn't find a tutor. He also tried to learn English, reading one short lesson a day. Meanwhile, back in Changsha, the local warlord General Zhang was overthrown and a former teacher was appointed to the new government. Mao's contact in the government helped Mao to get a new teaching job. Mao also started his own business, a cultural book society that amounted to a bookstore. Mao wasn't the only investor in the bookstore, as he had a wide spectrum of investors, from business leaders to his Marxist friend, Li Daojiao. Mao had a sizable inheritance from the death of his father, and no longer had the financial problems he faced just a few short years ago. Moreover, his position of director at a primary school also paid a comfortable living. Mao felt, though, that through the introduction of foreign and Chinese books, a new culture of learning would spread across Hunan. He also began to push for the idea of an independent Hunan. Hunan eventually did declare its independence, but within a few months, rival warlords were once again vying for control of the province, despite its nominal independence and its democratic institutions. Meanwhile, in March 1919, Lenin had convened the Third Communist International, known as the Comintern, the global arm of the Soviet Communist Party. Its job was to foster revolution throughout the rest of the world. Moscow began by secretly training a Chinese communist army in Siberia and established a KGB station in Shanghai with agents in key cities including Beijing and Canton. In the spring of 1920, the first Comintern agents arrived in China to spread the revolution. The first task was to create a Chinese communist party. The agents made contact with Li Daojiao, Mao's new friend, and spoke with him on establishing a party. Letters were sent out to the small number of Chinese communists living around the country and to those living in Japan. Fifteen representatives, 13 Chinese, and two Comintern agents convened in Shanghai for the first Congress of the Chinese Communist Party on July the 23rd, 1921. They and themselves represented the 53 members of the Chinese Communist Party nationwide. As of 2011, the Chinese Communist Party had 82 million members, just as a point of reference. 
Mao randomly was one of the two invited from Changsha to attend. Of the 15 people present in the room, not one was a worker. Mao said little at the meeting and made no obvious impact. But Mao in later life would use his attendance as a credential for his leadership of the party. The creation of the party has been a source of dispute between the Chinese Communist Party and the Comintern Archive, which dates the Chinese Communist founding uh, to 1920, not 1921. Whatever the precise circumstances, Mao knew both the founders, Li Dao Zhao and Chen Du Shi, fairly well, and he had made a name for himself in Jiangsha intellectual circles, but had virtually no formal knowledge of Marxist ideology or theory. Mao's knowledge of communism was based on having conversations with Li, what he read in socialist newspapers, and from what his friends in France wrote him, some of whom had joined the Communist Youth League there. Mao knew extremely little about the proletariat and was in reality a small businessman and an intellectual, quite honestly a member of the bourgeoisie himself. Indeed, Mao's bookstore had thrived and he had opened seven new locations with their own staffs. He hoped to have a total of 75 stores opened across all of Hunan. Working with the communists at the time, though, was not a crime, nor was there much suspicion of communism in China. The new Soviet Union was very much in vogue, especially as it had renounced Tsar's privileges in China, although the Soviets didn't really relinquish these claims until much later in reality. To be fair, Mao hadn't really gone looking to join the Communist Party. He had more or less been incorporated into the growing organization. The Chinese Communist Party was grateful for the aid provided by the Comintern, but their constant advice and interference bred an awkwardness. The line between the Comintern guidance and control was often blurred. The new Chinese Communist Party was dependent on their funds, and it was hard for the Chinese Communist Party to say no to Moscow as long as they kept the bills paid. Indeed, in their first nine months of party organization from October 1921 to June 1922, 94% of the party's funds came from Moscow. Indeed, there were other indigenous communist movements in China during the period, at least seven between 1920 and 1922, one claiming as many as 11,000 members. But without the funds, all these groups collapsed. The Comintern recommended to the new Chinese Communist Party that they work with the bourgeoisie in the interest of national revolution since both the proletariat and the bourgeoisie were small in China. China was economically decades from the point at which the proletariat would be developed enough to establish a socialist society, or so the theory went. Many Chinese, though, opposed working with the bourgeoisie. They argued that open propaganda of communism was an absolute condition for success, and that it was futile to hope to build a new society within the confines of the old society. After a short but fierce debate, it was agreed that the focus would be on organizing factory workers. Organizing the peasantry and the army would have to wait until the party grew. Finally, they agreed the capitalist class had to be overthrown and a classless society established inside China. Machinery, land, buildings, and other means of production would be under social ownership. Membership in the party would not be limited to nationality or gender. All that was needed was the backing by pre-existing party member and a background check. Party doctrines and membership lists were to be kept secret. Any region with five members could form their own unit or Soviet. Soviets with more than 35 members would form their own executive committees. Mao traveled back to Qingxia by early August 21st and was instructed to build up the party in Hunan. He showed no reluctance in taking money from Russia. As a high-ranking party member, he now received a check for 60 to 71 a month, which later would increase to 160 to 170. 
Despite Mao's busy schedule, he found time to see Yang Kei-wee, and they settled down to start a family despite no formal wedding ceremony. In spite of their relationship, Mao remained promiscuous seeing other women. When Kai-wee found out about Mao's affairs, she was often enraged but soon forgave Mao. Their first son, Yanning, was born in October 1922. Mao was a father at 28. By the end of 1922, though, he was more interested in becoming a professional revolutionary, coordinating strikes and affecting the lives of thousands of people, versus it being a new dad. Mao's newfound wealth had a profound impact on Mao's way of life. He now had enough money to buy a good-sized home with servants. He resigned from his job as a headmaster at the school. During this time, it is said that Mao developed his lifelong habit of sleeping late into the day and staying up all night to read. Mao also developed a lifelong skill during this period of time in finding skilled followers he could delegate responsibilities to. He had already delegated the running of the bookstores to a friend and found others he could delegate party tasks to as well. He went off on vacation with his mistress, telling his wife he had to leave for research or party business. By 1923, there was 33 major worker organizations in Hunan with membership around 30,000 workers, including miners, railway workers, silk factory workers, electrical workers, barbers, garment workers, shoemakers, and rickshaw pullers. Mao himself had been involved with several of these strikes, some of which had been directed by his former classmates who had returned from France. Mao's two younger brothers were also active in the strikes. In the period of 1921 to 1923, there had been around 10 strikes involving 22,000 workers, of which nine had been successful. At this point, the Chinese Communist Party was being pushed into an alliance with the Kuomintang and Sun Yat-sen. Mao's position on this is debated, as some say he opposed the alliance and others say he backed the alliance. The communists who opposed the alliance argued that the Chinese Communist Party and the Kuomintang had totally different aims. Moreover, they argued that the Kuomintang was corrupt and working with both the Americans and the Japanese, and to work with them would undermine the party's popularity with students. Mysteriously, Mao failed to attend the Second Party Congress in 1922. We assume he was invited since he attended the first. Mao later said that he missed the meeting because he became lost in Shanghai. Although this seems like an odd excuse, as the Congress was held for eight days, and Mao had traveled to Shanghai numerous times, staying there for extended periods of time. It seems unbelievable that he wandered the streets of Shanghai for eight days lost. Others have argued that Mao had sided with the pro-Kremlin faction, but failed to attend because he was afraid his faction might lose and he would be stripped of his position. Mao also faced criticism for his management of the party in Hunan. Some argued that he was corrupt and lazy. The truth of these claims, quite honestly, was hard for me to parse out. Mao did, however, attend the Third Party Congress in 1923 in Canton, where he endorsed the alliance between the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party. Mao was also elected to the party's Central Committee. Mao then proceeded to back to Shanghai, but received disturbing news about a crackdown in Hunan by the local warlord, closing many of the schools and several of the unions he had helped to establish. He immediately ran home and rejoined his wife and family in September 1923. Mao left his wife and two young children in January 1924 to attend the Kuomintang Party Congress, where Mao was elected an alternative member of the Kuomintang's own Central Committee and attended four meetings of the Kuomintang Central Party. From February until fall of 1924, Mao worked in Shanghai, working in both the Kuomintang and Chinese Communist Party Central Leadership. 
Indeed, Mao worked as a central figure in building cooperation between the two parties. In June 1924, he brought his wife and young family to live with him in Shanghai and got a nanny to help with the children. By July, though, Mao was convinced that the alliance wasn't tenable much longer. The Kuomintang right wing of militants and merchants was gaining ground and argued for cracking down on the workers and the communists. Many more in the Chinese Communist Party had never wanted the alliance in the first place and urged the party to end the alliance. Mao decided he had enough and went home to Changsha. For almost a year, he dropped out of sight, attending no party meetings, and was dropped from his committee roles one by one. Mao told his communist superiors that he was exhausted and needed time to rest. Other historians argue that Mao was edged out by his political opponents in Shanghai, who claimed that he was too tight with the nationalists and that he was expelled from the Central Committee. Another important factor was Mao wanted his own power base. Beyond his own energy and the, the friends he had made in the founding of the party, Mao lacked his own base of support. Chinese politics was driven by personalities and personal loyalties, and Mao's power base was small, so he might have decided to return home and build his power base. Both the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party had spoken about rural reform, but little had been done. Mao decided to make this his major effort. He also took up a local position with the Kuomintang Propaganda Department, arguing in favor of the United Front and against imperialism and militarism and for social revolution. Mao's rural activism manifested itself in many ways, starting with propaganda and educating peasants about their role in revolution. He also became the director of classes at the Peasant Training Institute. Mao took detailed notes on peasant living conditions, draft animals, and farming tools. Mao at this point didn't advocate land redistribution, but did advocate the use of violence to smash the existing social order. Mao backed acts of mob or street justice, where peasants attacked landlords and their families for real and or perceived wrongs. The party thought these events were outrageous and wanted Mao to be reined in. Moscow and the Soviets, however, liked Mao's style, which conformed with Soviet policies of the period. Mao's ideas might have been ideologically shaky, but Stalin and others saw Mao as a guy who could get things done. I want to take a quick moment here and thank our Patreon supporters and one-time contributors for making this show possible. Your contributions cover the cost of hosting the podcast, the website, and covering the cost of books, sources, and sound equipment. Moreover, if you like our biographical episodes like this episode or episodes about J. Edgar Hoover or Stalin, please consider helping us by making a donation through our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Not in a financial position to make a contribution? Please help us by spreading the word and giving us a positive review on iTunes or sharing your favorite episode on social media. Believe it or not, it goes a long way in getting us more listeners. If you don't like how these ads interrupt the narrative or me begging for money, become a Patreon supporter so you can get access to our commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. During the alliance between the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party from 1924 to 1927, Communist Party membership expanded exponentially, from about 1,000 members in 1925 to over 57,000 by 1927. In August of 1926, the United Front Armies liberated Changsha from warlord rule. Nevertheless, this all came crashing down in 1927. Chiang Kai-shek and others in the Kuomintang had become concerned about the growth and influence of the Communist Party and their allies in Moscow. Working with the Green Gang and other underworld figures, Chiang overthrew the Kuomintang government and cracked down on the communists in what came to be known as the White Terror. Thousands died and tens of thousands more were arrested. 
Stalin insisted, though, that the Chinese Communist Party try and work with the left wing of the Kuomintang despite the crackdown. Mao traveled to Wuhan in an attempt to try and placate the Kuomintang, but the left wing of the Kuomintang decided to align with Chiang against the communists. Moscow ordered Mao and the rest of the communists to take to the hills in the countryside and to wage guerrilla war. Mao raised a few thousand men and became a guerrilla commander. By early October, though, Mao and his remaining men had to retreat to an area controlled by bandits. The bandits allowed Mao and his forces to hide in their mountains. The hills were heavily forested in a constant mist with snakes and tigers, an ideal defensive position. Mao and his men lived by raiding the local countryside in a classic bandit raids. Mao lost contact with his wife, Yang Kiwi, whom he had just had his third child with. Trapped in the mountains, he had no way of visiting them, nor could they come and live with him. Mao's raids made frequent headlines in the press and raised his profile, but he and his men still struggled to survive. 1928 was a turning point in Mao's life. He was no longer a party leader of either the Kuomintang or the Chinese Communist Party. He was cut off from virtually all sources of authority and his family and friends. When he was forced by the party to lead some of his troops down into the plains, they suffered heavy casualties and retreated back into his mountain base. While there, he met his third wife, He Zhenyan, 19. She was famous for her spirit. She met Mao in the mountains. Mao was 34, lean from privation and rich with experience from his organizational work amongst the peasantry. In 1929, Mao decided to relocate his forces to a new base camp further away from the Kuomintang forces, moving his troops to eastern Jiangxi and western Fujian provinces. Once again, though, Mao found himself subject to pressure from party leadership. They were disappointed with Mao's leadership of his forces, and he came under fierce criticism for his embrace of rural revolution in contrast to the party's strategy of capturing cities. It was also during this time that Mao and his third wife had their first child, a baby girl. She was given to a rural couple for safekeeping, but died as an infant. Mao also became very ill, though, and suffering from tuberculosis and ended up spending several months bedridden. His second wife, Yang Ki Wei, unfortunately was murdered by the Kuomintang forces during this period for refusing to renounce her husband. Their three children were sent to Shanghai to live with friends and were enrolled in a school. After the school closed, they became street beggars living hand-to-mouth. The youngest child died, but the party located An Ying and An Qing by then in their early teens, and they were sent to the Soviet Union for their safety. Mao wouldn't reunite with them until 1946. Mao lived in his new base area known as the Jiangxi Soviet for the next five years. The Jiangxi Soviet was in many ways the proto-state to the People's Republic of China. Mao's career and political standing fluctuated violently during these years. Much of the time as titular chairman of the provincial Soviet government, he was the signatory of major party documents and attended central party committee meetings. Moscow had placed Zhu Di in charge of the army. He had trained in Russia and the Soviets knew him well. Zhou Enlai was made the party chief and in the communist system, the party chief wields most of the power. The new state saw its population not as citizens but as raw material to generate wealth, food, labor, and soldiers for the ultimate liberation of China into a new socialist state. Zhou was a master in organization, and under him, the Jiangxi Soviet became an interlocking machine. He was instrumental in building up a bureaucracy who turned policy into reality. Zhou also set up the Chinese KGB, called the Political Security Bureau, which Moscow supervised.
Committees were created to cover every aspect of society, from land to curfew. People were enmeshed into the system, starting at the age of six with the Children's Corps. At 15, they joined the Youth Brigade, and all adults, including the old and crippled, were members of the Red Defense Army. In this way, the entire population was regimented. Mao built his power via networking. Joe, in contrast, would serve Mao until his death. He gave Mao the bureaucratic tools to build one of the greatest totalitarian regimes in history, akin to the Third Reich or the Soviet Union under Stalin. Mao's henchmen up to this point had been personal friends and sycophants. In the years to come, Joe would supply Mao with fanatical believers and professionals who had been trained in the Soviet Union. Like in the Soviet Union, landlords and kulaks, those peasants marginally better than their neighbors, were liquidated in order to create new wealth and a workforce for the new regime. This process did create thousands of slave laborers, but provided very little wealth as the peasants had very little to steal. As a harbinger of things to come, China's first red state was run by terror and guarded like a prison. A pass was needed just to travel from one village to another, and sentries were ubiquitous, standing guard around the clock. Suicide was so common and became so bad that the regime had to tackle the problem publicly with propaganda and slogans shaming those who committed suicide. Even a high-ranking lieutenant, Yang Wu-Bing, a favorite of Mao's, defected to the nationalists. In all, it's estimated that between 1931 and 1935, 700,000 people died in the proto-communist state. So you might be asking why the Jiangxi Soviet era didn't scare off people from the communist movement in the later 1940s. Many people were fully aware of these atrocities, but by the late 1940s, the Jiangxi Soviet had been over 10 years ago. Over half the Communist Party by 1945 were in their 20s, and very few were over the age of 30. Second, many of those that lived in the Jiangxi Soviet had either died under its rule or subsequently during the nationalist invasion. Others claimed that the stories around the Jiangxi Soviet were nationalist propaganda. In many ways, people simply forgot by the late 1940s as the incompetence of the Kuomintang regime took center stage in their lives. During the Jiangxi Soviet era, Mao's stock in the party had fallen, in part to his disagreement with the party's strategy in fighting the nationalists for control of the cities, which Mao opposed in favor of a rural guerrilla strategy. By 1934, Mao was under virtual arrest as his, quote, bodyguards watched him all hours of the day and night. From April to October 1934, Mao, still chairman of the border region, lived with his wife and family in virtual isolation in a hillside temple. During this period as well, Japan emerged as a foreign threat to China, which helped the party. Japan had invaded Manchuria in 1931, and in 1932, fighting had broken out in Shanghai. Anti-Japanese propaganda proved to be a potent factor in recruiting students to the Communist Party. In 1932, Mao and He Zhenhe, his third wife, had their second child, uh, and she had a third child in 1933, but that child died in infancy. From 1930 to 1934, the Jiangxi Soviet fought off repeated nationalist attacks. In Chiang's fifth attempt, he brought a million troops to once and for all destroy the communists. Under unrelenting pressure, the Chinese Communist Party decided to abandon the Jiangxi Soviet and escape to the border region with the Soviet Union, where they could receive supplies and support from the Soviet Union. This escape became the legendary Long March. Before the escape began, thousands of those deemed unreliable were rounded up and shot. Thousands of others were pressed into service as porters carrying heavy loads of equipment and party documents. 
Mao was excluded in the planning for the march, and he and his wife joined the march like so many others. He insisted that despite his wife being pregnant, she be allowed to join the long march. Only a handful of women made the march, but Mao was ordered to leave his two-year-old son behind, so Mao left his son with his younger brother. Mao's younger brother was subsequently killed in fighting in 1935, and it remains a mystery of what happened to his son. The Long March was a nightmare of death and pain. Of the 85,000 people who began the march, only 7,000 would make it to Yan'an, the new base camp of the Communist Party. The Long Column was bogged down with equipment, party documents, weapons, communications equipment, and whatever else could be salvaged from the Jiangxi Soviet. Kuomintang artillery and planes attacked and harassed the column as they slowly walked in zigzag circles towards northwest China. Despite the broad agreement to get to the border with Russia, there was no agreed-upon route to take or clear final destination. Many of the porters had been released from labor gangs and were already physically weaked. Some just collapsed and died while walking. Many others fell sick. The autumn rains made the paths and roads into a sea of mud. They suffered from poor sleeping conditions, often sleeping on the cold ground or in the mud. Many of the sick failed to wake up in the morning. Many suffered from feet infections and wrapped their feet with rotten cloth. Thousands of others deserted. To escape, the communists paid off the local Cantonese warlord to slip through Chang's lines. Some historians argue that Chang allowed the communists to escape, fearing if he destroyed them completely, Moscow would kill his son, who was a hostage in the Soviet Union. When they reached Zenwi in 1935, the Politburo met to discuss their next steps. 1934 had been a disastrous year for the party. The policy of attempting to capture cities had been an abject failure, and the party faced the distinct danger of being wiped out. Blame had to be assigned, and more importantly, what to do next had to be decided. At the meeting were 17 leading veteran party members and one common turn representative, Otto Braun. His interpreter and note-taker was the future leader of China, the 31-year-old Dao Xiaoping. Braun and two other leaders were assigned the blame for the defeat of the communists at Jingxi. The group of the three who had been leading the Long March were abolished, and Mao was named to the Standing Committee of the Politburo, putting him in charge of the march moving forward. Many communist commanders, though, were opposed to Mao and abandoned Mao's group and moved off in their own direction, and despite his formal rise in power, his forces slowly shrank. Mao's small force endured a hellish march through the swamplands and mountains where their main enemies, apart from grim skirmishes with the local tribes, was intense hunger. There was almost no food to be either bought or stolen. They were constantly damp with freezing temperatures at night. Many of the remaining 15,000 or so people in the column died of malnutrition, sprouting sores, or by eating poisonous weeds and berries. While on the march, He Zhenhen, his wife, was badly injured in a bombing attack with shrapnel embedded in her body. She gave birth successfully to a girl, but gave the child to a local peasant family. The girl was never heard from again and became the fourth child he and Mao had lost to the war. The survival of Mao's group came down to chance more than anything else. Mao and his comrades learned to their surprise that a communist base existed in North Xi'an just 350 kilometers away, so Mao led his loyal forces there. The other group, which was initially larger and stronger, was attacked by Muslim forces in northwest China. Mao and the remaining communists escaped to Yan'an, one of the most barren and most sparsely populated regions in China. Yan'an was a small market town where most of the locals lived in cave dwellings. Such homes were cheap to build and gave good cover from the extreme heat and cold that afflicted the region. 
The fact that Mao lived in such a cave for a while struck visitors as symbolic of his revolution. Despite his election as head of the party, though, Moscow gave Mao its blessing as the new leader of the Chinese Communist Party. This was vital as Moscow still paid the party's bills, and without their support, he couldn't hope to maintain his leadership of the party. During this time, as we outlined in episode 50, Mao read extensively about Marxism, Leninism, philosophy, economics, as well as books about military strategy. Reading the Soviet Army's Field Manual, The Art of War, Ludendorff's Total War, and von Clausewitz's On War. It was here, as we reviewed in episode 50, that Mao refocused the Chinese Communist Party from an emphasis on the city's proletariat to one based on peasants in the rural countryside. From this foundation, he built his military strategy of national liberation. Mao also acquired a very valuable secretary, Chen Boda, a lecturer from Beijing University. Born in 1904, Chen was a decade younger than Mao. He grew up in an impoverished peasant family in Fujian province. He studied Marxist-Leninism in Moscow for several years, and he became fluent in Russian. In 1931, he returned to China to become a teacher of Chinese history and philosophy before moving to Yan'an. Chen had an extraordinary ability to apply knowledge of dialectics to the study of the past. Mao made Chen his secretary with responsibility for drafting his essays and speeches. Mao also named Chen head of research in the Communist Propaganda Bureau. This was followed by an appointment at the Yan'an Central Party School to supervise research there into Chinese problems. Chen Boda was to become an essential ideological ally and guide to Mao. Mao struggled with keeping Yan'an a viable economy and political base. Xi'an was very different from any place Mao had ever lived. The region's poverty was staggering, which was only exacerbated by the nationalist and later Japanese isolation of the region. Moreover, there was an influx of new recruits to the communist camp as a result of the war with Japan. In 1937, his wife found that she was pregnant again for the sixth time and told Mao she wanted to go to a good Shanghai hospital to abort the baby and to have her remaining shrapnel fragments removed from her body. When Japan occupied Shanghai, she decided to go to the Soviet Union instead. At the same time, she suspected Mao was being unfaithful to her. In Moscow, she reversed her earlier decision and decided to keep the child, who was born in early 1938, but died a few months later of pneumonia. It was at this time that Mao sent their daughter, Li Min, now two, to be with her mother in Russia. Yi Zhen also looked after Mao's t- two sons from his previous marriage to Ying Kiwi, as well as in Russia. Now that his wife and children were gone, Mao became involved with another woman, Jiang Qing, his future, future fourth and final wife. Born in 1914, Jiang Qing was the daughter of a concubine and an alcoholic inn owner. Her mother let her grow up wild for the time, even unbinding her feet. She was a tough little girl involved in frequent fights with her parents. She bullied her classmates and was expelled from school when she was 12. At 14, she ran away from home to join a traveling opera show. She made her way to Shanghai and tried to become an actress, but by 1937 found herself out of work with a seven-year-old son. She thus decided to flee to Yan'an to live with the communists. She quickly got herself noticed by Mao, sitting in the front row at Mao's lectures and asking questions. Their liaison was resented by several communist leaders who were shocked by how blatantly Mao cheated on his wife with this woman of ill repute. Many communist leaders had respected and admired He Jian. Moreover, Jiang was a woman with a past. She had already been married or lived with four men, and hid a trail of gossip which followed her from Shanghai. 
By one account, she slept with a number of Nationalist Guards to win her freedom after being captured. Many leaders wrote to Mao to warn him about this woman, but Mao didn't care. Mao and Jiang Qing had one child, Lai Na, born in 1940. Lai Na grew up in Yan'an and was the last of Mao's four surviving children. Mao's other six children had either died in infancy or childhood or had disappeared. Despite the shock of Mao's actions with this woman, few people dared to criticize Mao. He seemed to now more than ever to be less flexible and more determined to make those around him confirm to his whims and beliefs. Mao chose to live a simplistic life and forced those around him to live that life as well. In Yan'an, Mao flaunted his country ways, opening his belt to hunt for lice in his groin as he talked or, or pulling off his pants in the middle of an interview as he laid in his bed. Mao wore peasant clothing, was relaxed, talkative, and entertaining. Chang went to bed early and rose early to exercise and pray. Mao slept during the day and stayed up late at night, smoked endlessly, ate sloppily, and cracked jokes, often inappropriate ones. Mao, a good classical poet, wrote in a simple style, direct and to the point. None of this was by accident, but by design. Mao stressed the difference between him and Chang, who dressed immaculately in his military uniform. He was controlled in exercise. Yidan became the new radical, egalitarian, energetic alternative to corrupt, urban, exploitative nationalist China. When the Soviet Union was invaded in 1941, Mao's position within the party and within China was greatly affected. Much of the aid they received came from Moscow. Without these resources, Mao had to rely entirely on himself and what little aid he could get from the nationalists. By 1940, the Soviets were still providing the Chinese Communist Party with some $300,000 per month. On the other hand, the loss of Kremlin support gave Mao a greater control of the party. As we have seen since the beginning of the party, Moscow had always had a say in what happened within the Chinese Communist Party. After all, they did pay the bills. With the loss of this aid, Mao could say no to Moscow and not have to fear the Soviets backing someone else. With Moscow distracted with events closer to home, there was no checks on Mao's powers and ambitions. When Stalin asked Mao to attack the Japanese, fearing they might join their Axis allies in the conquest of Russia, Mao refused, saying his forces weren't strong enough despite the fact that Mao had some 329,000 men under arms and had been receiving direct military aid from the Soviets for seven years. Stalin, though, was just as open in working with Mao's archenemies, the Naturalist, and even signed a treaty of friendship with them in 1945 after the war. Mao and Stalin's relationship was not one based on the brotherhood of socialist people, but on naked self-interest. They mutually used each other, and both men understood this. No matter what the one might do for the moment, neither man ceased doing business with the other. Mao also began the rectification campaign we spoke about in episode 52. From 1937 to 1940, party membership had grown from 400,000 to 800,000, while the 8th route and new 4th route army expanded to 500,000 men. This did cause some problems, though, as 90% of these new members were youths who had fled to cities to join the communists. They were not acquainted with the rural conditions. Indeed, Yan'an was not the egalitarian society they had imagined it to be. Yan'an was a strictly regimented society with a clear hierarchy, not based on wealth but position in the party, with Mao on top. Top leaders received the most and best food, while those not in the party eked out a living despite heavy labor. Top party members had nannies and sent their children to school in Russia. Middle-ranking members sent their children to local schools. While lower-ranking party members tended to not have children, as it would be hard for them to survive. 
only high-ranking party members had access to medicine from nationalist China or America. Once there, leaving Yan'an was not an option, so very few people outside of Yan'an knew what was happening there. Naturally, Chinese Communist Party propaganda made the place out to be a utopian, egalitarian society. Mao knew this privilege was a sore spot and forced party member leadership to live as frugally as possible. Unlike the Jiangxi Soviet, Mao kept slave labor to a minimum. The chief direct source of revenue had been the grain tax, but Mao knew the farmers resented the tax and it worked against his strategy of mobilizing the farmers. Mao therefore used propaganda to argue that the taxes were lower, although in reality they are on par with the nationalists. He also tried to keep the size of the army small to keep costs low. The other big solution was opium. Opium production was kept quiet, but the Chinese Communist Party became the largest heroin producers in China. By 1944, the party was rich in contrast to the Kuomintang, who were broke. The windfall enriched the party, and then the once-thin Mao put on weight. The Chinese Communist Party could afford to keep taxes on the peasants relatively low. Mao also invested in literacy programs and in aiding the peasants to win popular support. Mao also vetoed the party from selling opium to the peasants. In Yan'an, a drug-addicted peasantry was of no use to him. Most Yan'an peasants continued to live well below the poverty standard, as some 60% of their children died in childhood. Moreover, the influx of the communists and their printing of money caused high inflation, which hurt the peasants. They never had enough money to even buy basic goods like clothes, salt, or matches. Loans sharking flourished with 30 to 50% interest rates. By 1944, the regime did, though, take steps to lower interest rates and bring inflation under control. Mao is claimed to have said that without opium, they could have not made it through the crisis years. Yan'an, on the other hand, would remain extremely poor long after Mao won control of China. Mao also worried that many newcomers could be Japanese or Kuomintang spies. Thus, in 1942, Mao launched the rectification campaign. The campaign targeted what Mao called the three diseases, subjectivism, sectarianism, and party formalism. Subjectivism was a belief that a person could read Marxist literature and understand them on his own without guidance from the Communist Party. Sectarianism meant the, pro the protection of one's own faction and ignoring orders from a higher authority. Party formalism was the habit of party officials writing long diatribes filled with empty cliches and generalizations, but which said nothing. The antidote to this disease was a collective study of 22 documents, five of which were written by Mao himself. Rectification began at the top of the party and over the next two years moved down the ranks. Participants were required to keep diaries and produce self-criticisms. Party members reflected on where, when, and how, and with whom they had fallen into error, not just in their behavior, but also in their thinking, because self-criticisms were preserved in their personnel files of each party member for the rest of their lives. The party could choose to punish them for something they had confessed to at any time, an excellent way to ensure discipline and subordination to Mao and the party. Mao used the rectification campaign to consolidate his rule of the party. He compelled his critics and political opponents to submit to self-criticism and acknowledge in public their acceptance of Mao's views. Most, in the end, did not put up much of a fight. By 1943, though, the campaign started to spin out of control. The Central Committee issued a directive that a large Japanese and national spy network was operating in Yan'an. Innocent people were tortured and executed before Mao reigned in the campaign after apologizing for the excesses of the campaign on three different occasions. Nevertheless, by 1943, he was the undisputed leader of the party, towering over any other figures in the party. 
During this period, Mao also became more openly critical and irritated with the intellectuals in Yan'an. Some of this might have been the result of the students flocking to Yan'an, but another part might have been a bitterness left over from his youth and his time at Beijing University. It was now he who lectured the intellectuals to be humble. The world of experience and meaning was more valuable than the world of knowledge and books, Mao argued. Mao contended that the intellectuals must identify themselves with the proletariat and the masses rather than try and instruct and uplift them. Despite his mastery of the party, Mao felt in danger. He doubled his bodyguard and moved to a heavily defended villa outside of Yan'an with high walls and a bomb shelter. Even Mao's secret police staff didn't feel safe. His head of security, Ken Shang, always feared for his life. Ken was sadistic and joyfully participated in the Soviet show trials of the 1930s. Kane loved to watch his victims condemned fall into the abyss just when they thought they were safe. Kane, though, had a murky background, and it was unclear when he joined the party. Legend has it Mao always held some incriminating evidence over Kane. In fact, in the 1940s, the Soviets urged Mao to get rid of Kane, but Mao relished manipulating people's weaknesses to make them his personal slaves. Even on his deathbed in 1975, Ken pleaded with Mao that he was clean. Mao had routed the intellectuals and their Soviet backers in the party. They were now completely subservient to him, and he began the process of building his own cult of personality. Until 1943, it had been possible to admire Mao, but still question some of his policies. But now people were forced to shout, Long live Chairman Mao, a slogan that had been used in Imperial China in reference to the emperor. It would be like asking Americans to say, long live the president. Many people were critical of this, but with the rectification campaign, this type of questioning and independent talk was killed off. Every step in the construction of Mao's cult was choreographed by Mao himself. He micromanaged the Liberation Daily paper using giant headlines like, quote, Comrade Mao Zedong is the savior of the Chinese people, exclamation mark, close quote. Mao began the practice of giving out badges and medals with his face emblazoned upon them. In 1943, photos of Mao began to appear on family walls, and the East is Red, Mao's anthem became a popular song. Mao's formula was simple, yet effective. For everything wrong with the party, Mao blamed others. For every success, he took credit, rinse and repeat. To achieve this end, even history was rewritten, and indeed even inverted. At the Seventh Party Congress in 1945, 17 years since the last in 1928, which Mao had postponed for years, he combed through the 500-member delegate list with a fine-tooth comb. Many of the party's members were in prison, had been executed, or had committed suicide. Many others had suffered mental breakdowns. Hundreds of new delegates had to be appointed, which be loyal to Mao. The party inaugurated him as the supreme leader of the party and the absolute authority. He was made the head of the Central Committee, the Politburo, and the Secretariat. In 24 years, Mao had gone from obscure member of the party in remote Hunan to the undisputed leader of the Chinese Communist Party, with some 25% of China under his rule. All that was left was the conquest of the rest of China. With the end of the war against Japan, the Civil War reawakened, which was reviewed in Episode 52. As we outlined last episode during the War of Resistance against the Japanese, the war was waged primarily by the nationalists. Mao, although he attacked and harassed the nationalists and Japanese from time to time, his primary focus was on building up his forces for the upcoming civil war and to secure his control of the Chinese Communist Party. If you're interested in just how the civil war played out and how and why the communists triumphed or the nationalists, 
Check it out, episode 52. Or for a more in-depth understanding of the conflict, listen to episodes 49 through 52, if you haven't already done so. Mao was victorious in the Chinese Civil War, defeating the nationalist in four years, capturing all of the China minus Taiwan. On October the 1st, 1949, Mao and senior leaders of the Communist Party, then in the region of Beijing, climbed to a reviewing stand on the Great Tenement Gate in front of a small bank of microphones. Mao announced the formation of the People's Republic of China in front of a crowd of hundreds of thousands of people who chanted, Long live Chairman Mao. Mao announced to the world that China had stood up and that the century of humiliation which China had suffered had come to an end. It would be the only speech he ever delivered from there in his 27-year reign. From a poor villager in remote southern China, Mao, in 53 years, after many incredible events and unexpected turns, had become leader of a nation of 550 million people, the most populous and ancient nation in the world. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. I want to also thank those who have shared the show with your friends and family. I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in getting us more listeners. If you don't have a lot of friends in history and you are already a contributor, but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out the pictures for this episode, ask questions, or donate to the podcast, check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well, there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.